Hello, everyone. My name is Jackie, and I am an alcoholic. I'd like to ask for a moment of silence and gratitude for the AA recoveries of the past 75 years. Um, as I told you, my name is Jackie, and I'm an alcoholic. I was bred, born, and sobered up in Vermont. And, uh, you know, I, my mom... I was born on a farm, and my mom had four children. I was the baby, and um, she breastfed everybody and handed me a bottle. And I thought that was apropos for me. And from that point on, I demanded my way until I was 38 years old and came absolutely desperate to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was willing to do anything to stay alive. I wanted to drink. But I couldn't predict anymore what I did when I drank, and that brought me to this program. That and my husband, who had two years of sobriety on me, and you know what I wanted? I wanted what he had. He had someone he called every day to talk to, and I had no one, absolutely no one. And so, you know, here I am, a farm girl at the International Convention in San Diego, sober, and going to introduce some wonderful speakers on unity. I got into this boat, you know, struggling, but I did what I was told. I didn't drink. I went to meetings, and I called a sponsor every day, and I am sober. I have not had to pick up a drink since January 30th, 1988, because of this program. So, I have a group. My home group is the Fairhaven Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Fairhaven, Vermont. And, um, you know, I'm active in it. I'm active in service. I've had the privilege of serving as uh, Area 70, that's Vermont um, Delegate, Panel 54. And um, I still serve whenever they need. And uh, I thank Rick for this loving invitation to chair this meeting. With that, on unity, our first speaker will be Vicki E. from British Columbia. <laughs> Oh, geez, there's a lot of you. My name is Vicki and I am an alcoholic. And uh, I'm not so sure I'm going to thank Rick right now. <laughs> I did earlier this, you know, a couple of weeks ago when I got my loving invitation. And, uh, and at the time I thought, oh, isn't it an honor and a privilege to be asked to share in Alcoholics Anonymous at the international convention? And frankly, I don't feel like that right now. <laughs> but I am grateful to be first, though, and maybe I'll hear something. <laughs> Now, can everybody hear? Am I popping my peas? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> As I said, I am an alcoholic. And many other things, but in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I got sober on December the 29th, 1975, in a farming community in Langley, B.C., which is about uh, 60 kilometers east of Vancouver. And I currently am a member of the... Uh, Outhouse group in Knutsford, B.C., <laughs> which is a suburb of Kamloops. And it's, again, another farming community. And uh, I grew up on a farm, and it was my life's ambition to get away from those stinking cows. And I keep falling back into them. I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I want to begin by telling you that uh, unity is one of those commodities that I think is um, so essential to Alcoholics Anonymous that that we wrote 12 traditions to protect it, and uh, among other things, of course, but it, the primary 
um, uh, objective for protection when writing those 12 traditions, as Bill has said, was our unity as a fellowship. It was, it's absolutely essential. We have an author in Kamloops by the name of Richard Wagamese, and he once said, it takes togetherness to accomplish things. It takes unity and a common purpose. And Bill wrote in a great fine article in 1949, he talked about personal unity as a healing and a reassembling and a becoming one. And he went on to say that if that was necessary for the alcoholic to stay sober, to become a oneness and to have a, a, a reunification and reassembly, it would be absolutely essential for our, our fellowship to do the same. And in the language of the heart, he wrote, isn't it also a fact that the alcoholic is in no greater peril than when he takes sobriety for granted? If vigilant practice of sound principle is a matter of life and death for him, why isn't that equally so for the AA group and for our far-flung society itself? And so we adopted Tradition 1. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Without the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, there can be no personal recovery for alcoholics like you and me. Um, I once served on a committee that I think probably, for me, epitomized unity better than anything else I'd ever done and had witnessed. I was invited to um, be a part of a committee that was to rewrite the procedures and guidelines for our local intergroup office. The ones that we had were great, and they had been in use for quite some time, but there had been a few amendments, and there were some duplications and some missing spaces, and they talked about using the Gestetner. I bet half of you don't even know what that was. <laughs> Being an old secretary, I know what it was, and I have used them. But it had long, long ago gone defunct. And so it was time to update that, that manual. And the, the uh, committee consisted of me, a clerical-type person, with a bit of management, middle management, uh, a former military man, a janitor, and a, a graphic artist. And... Um, so we realized that, you know, this was a really important document and we weren't going to rush through it. And so we laid some ground rules. And the first rule was we'll eat. <laughs> Every time we meet, we eat. <laughs> we figured that an empty stomach could cause us to rush through things. <laughs> and even if we had to have a nap, we would eat first. So we ate. It took us 18 months. I don't know whether we were addicted to the work or the food, but <laughs> it took us 18 months to get this document done. But back to unity, one of the things that we agreed was we would change nothing and we would leave nothing exactly as it was until we had 100% unanimity on that decision. And so we went through it, sentence by sentence, page by page, chapter by chapter. And 18 months later, we were finished with the document and we were satisfied that we had done our very best and that nothing had been done in that book. There was not one word in that book that we hadn't 100% agreed upon. And sometimes we'd get together and we would rewrite a sentence, and the next time we'd get together and we'd take it all apart again. And, um, and sometimes we did that because one member said, you know what, I'm not comfortable. I want us to rethink that. And nowhere else have I ever seen that minority voice honored in the way that it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have whole countries being run on minorities. I'm not sure that it's done well, but it is a fact that in most other societies, a simple majority, and sometimes not even, is enough, right? In Alcoholics Anonymous, that isn't good enough. It isn't good enough. We're not satisfied with good. We have to have the best. And total unanimity, as best we can, is always the best. Um, 
I remember sitting in lots of area assembly meetings, and I remember one in particular. I'm from Area 79, and that includes British Columbia, a tiny piece of Washington in the in the very ultimate east end of Washington, close, but not, not completely, because, of course, the Area 78 has a piece of that. We're quite a diverse area. But in any case, it includes all of the province of British Columbia plus the Yukon. Now, if you haven't been to the Western Regional Hospitality Suite on the fourth floor at the Grand Hyatt, please do so. Go take a look at the map of our region. Area 79 includes the BC Yukon area, which is the Yukon is a territory and British Columbia is a province. Area 78 is Alberta, the province of Alberta, a piece of BC up here and a piece of BC down here, and all of the Northwest Territories. Right? Is that right? All of it? Right. And half of none of it. <laughs> Most of the population of Canada is along the 49th parallel. Most of, we have two people here from Yellowknife, by the way, that I know of. There's only two that I know of, Terry and her friend. <laughs> I'm told that if you drive from Edmonton to Yellowknife, it's going to be two days, 18 hours drive. Watch out for Buffalo. They don't turn to look at you. You'll just hit them. <laughs> or it's a $1,000 flight. And the same is true for the Yukon. I'm just going to give you that geographical background because I want you to understand something. We decided we were going to hold an assembly in Whitehorse Yukon Territory. And Al and Phyllis are laughing. They were there. And um, everybody was like, yeah, this would be so great. It's wonderful. It's a $1,000 flight to go from Vancouver to Whitehorse. But to get to Vancouver first, you might have to go from Prince Rupert, 16 hours drive down to Vancouver. No, more than that. It's probably about 24 hours drive. From Prince Rupert all the way down to Vancouver. Or you can fly there for about 600 bucks to catch a flight to go to Whitehorse. So the dollars alone were astronomical. And this wasn't our quarterly meeting of a handful of DCMs that might attend and the General Service Committee. This was a whole assembly that was going to go there. And we were all pumped. Wasn't this great? Aren't we fabulous? We're just so great. We're going to carry the message to the poor frozen north. <laughs> and the next morning, one of our bloody deacons, a past trustee, came to the mic and said, I want us to think about this. <laughs> And so we thought about it and reversed our decision. Because one person came forward and said, we need to think about this. We need to think, is this prudent spending of the Alcoholics Anonymous dollars? Is this prudent spending of our volunteer time? Does it really make a lot of sense in the face of things? We could pay for three representatives to come from Whitehorse to almost anywhere else in the province for way less dollars and be just as effective. And because that one person said, let's think about this, about this decision, one other person said, I want to change my vote. And because that one person said, I want to change my vote, we had another vote. And we had more decisions to make. And more discussion was held. And it was decided that it wasn't prudent. And as, and as wonderful as it might have been, and as much fun as we might have had, it wasn't prudent. And it was time for us to rethink. And so we did. We have since then had a quarterly meeting in the Yukon. And, of course, it was smaller. It was fewer people attended, but it was a quarterly meeting, and it was okay. We got away with that. Um, I, uh, uh, another thing that Bill had said is um, in Alcoholics Anonymous came, Comes of Age, which is our fabulous new uh, uh, book, 
it's been updated. He said, there were forces among us that could threaten us in ways that alcohol and sex could not. Amazing. <laughs> I remember being 25, <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> and these were the desires for power, for domination, for glory, and for money. They were all the more dangerous because they were invariably powered by self-righteousness, self-justification, and that destructive power of anger, usually masquerading as righteous indignation. Pride, fear, and anger. These are the prime enemies of our common welfare. True brotherhood, harmony, and love, fortified by clear insights and right practices, are the only answer. And when I read that, I thought, who among us can't point to a situation, an event within our group, our intergroup, our area level, and recall how those words might have applied? I've done it. You know, I've been at the mic screaming, what do you think you're doing, and who do you think you are, and, you know, and somebody else has come up very gently and said, we are who we are and we're doing what we're doing or something to that effect. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I, I think to myself, you know, when I, am, when I am in that state of righteousness, am I creating unity or am I in fact destroying unity? And those are the only things I have to ask myself, you know. I, um, I've been really blessed. I, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I couldn't, I couldn't understand the 12 steps. I don't have a religious background. I don't have a whole lot of uh, Bible study learning or any of that kind of stuff. I still don't understand that book, but probably that's just as well. I might start interpreting if I did. <laughs> but uh, in any case, I, didn't, I, I couldn't understand what they meant. But somehow the 12 traditions resonated with me. And I, I saw that if I did nothing else in Alcoholics Anonymous, if I could figure out a way to use those 12 traditions every day in my daily life, I'd live a pretty good life. And it'd be okay if I never found a power greater than myself. It would be okay if I could never, ever understand these 12 steps and never got on my knees to pray. As long as I tried to practice these 12 traditions, I'd probably get by. And so that's what I set about to do. And I had people that recognized that I was getting something about that, and they steered me into service. And... Um, and I was, given a, I was given a service manual, for God's sake. I was sober about a month, I think, and they gave me a service manual. I didn't read it, of course. I was way too smart. <laughs> Except when I really needed something to put me to sleep. But, um, but the 12 traditions, I understood them, you know, in a way, somehow. I, couldn't, I could not articulate that. I couldn't have told you what it was about it that resonated with me, but I understood them. And so um, when all else fails for me, that's what I turn to. I turned to the 12 traditions. I later on learned a little bit about the 12 concepts. And uh, a year ago in Kamloops, a group of us got together and studied the 12 concepts and the 12 traditions as a group. And, and uh, we took turns um, uh, describing our experience around those, uh, those uh, concepts and traditions. And, um, and, and I don't know, you know, I, I think we all came away with a little bit better understanding, a little bit more knowledge. But I think for me, it's probably time to do it again. Because I have, um, I have Alzheimer's. <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. I don't, I'm, I don't have Alzheimer's. What I mean is, I, have, I can't remember a damn thing. That's what that is. <laughs> I, think, I think the computer's full and it needs to be formatted or something. Um, but in any case, um, I, I, I think of my own life and, and those times when I might have been about to make a really bad decision. I remember one day in particular, I was sitting in a job. And I hadn't been there very long, and I was beginning to think that they had obviously made a mistake, or I had made a mistake. Somebody had made a real bad mistake, and I really probably shouldn't even be there, and nobody seemed to have time to tell me what I was supposed to be doing. And, you know, and I was just having a real bad day about it. And I was getting myself running in circles, and, 
and somehow the, the first tradition came into my mind. And uh, I realized that I had a choice to make here. And so I sat there quietly for a minute and I thought, okay, what is the common purpose of this company that I'm working for? And um, when I find out what that is, what is my role in that common purpose? How can I bring unity here? I can't bring unity if I'm going to quit. I can't bring unity if I'm going to sit here and stamp my feet and suck my thumb in front of everybody. How, what can I do to bring unity? And what I finally decided was I was going to do the job that I thought I was supposed to be doing, the thought I, that I thought I'd been hired to do. I would do that job to the best of my ability. And if at the end of uh, uh, six months or a year, the company decided I'd made a real bad mistake and they didn't like what I was doing, they were free to tell me to go or I could leave. But from now until then, I was just going to try and figure out the common purpose and stick to that and do the job. And I worked there for seven years and I was offered a better job and I left, right? The better job was I went to work at Central Office in Vancouver and that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but I, I, uh, I just, I just want to thank you again for your attention and for coming and, and, and listening. Um, I know in meetings like this we're converting the converted or else the, the sex meeting's full. I don't, whatever, but, um, they could run one of those every hour, I suppose, and it'd always be full, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know what we're doing there, getting there sex vicariously for some of us old folks or what it is. But, <laughs> but I'm glad that I had the opportunity to, uh, to read some of the literature that is uh, pertinent to this particular topic and uh, to refresh my memory once again. That everything I do, everything I do, no matter where I do it and who I'm doing it with, Everything I do has an impact on the world in which I live. And so it's necessary for me to really consider carefully, is what I am about to do going to create unity or will it create controversy? And will it be unifying? Will it be good for this situation, this family, this group, this whatever body? Or will it in fact cause disharmony and pain? And if I can always remember, go to the love, go to the love, and the love will always be create unity, bring health, don't hurt, don't harm, then I'll probably make the right decision. Thanks for your attention. Thank you, Vicki. Um, what a wonderful message. Um, in between, I'm supposed to tell you a little bit more about me. So I'm going to tell you this thing about me that, um, you know, when I was drinking, I was head of everything in my community, and um, I did it well. And I was, uh, I was uh, working bingo for the parish, and I happened to go into the kitchen, and I was cleaning it. And behind this freezer, I found these two plywood boards, and on them was 12 sentences. And I thought, what is this? Dirty, brown, misspelled words, you know. So I threw it back in there, and I continued my drinking career. And after my first year, my sponsor said, Jackie, you need to find a home group because I'm not baking five cakes next year because I thought every group I went to I celebrated with, and that isn't the way it's done, I guess. So um, <laughs> I picked my home group, and I happened to be, you know, there listening, and I thought, well, what am I got to do here? And I heard some uh, elders talking about, gee, I wonder whatever happened to the steps that uh, that lady made from New York and printed on the plywood. And I said, I know where they are. I know where they are. And I went, and by God, ten years later, they were still by that freezer. I got them. I took them into the meeting, and I said, here they are. Now, I said, that is a God thing. I have no idea what the steps were. And I, you know, I thought, 
plywood. And, you know, today they are the steps in my home group. 22 years later, they still move their misspelled words. They proudly lean against the wall, and I love them. So with that, that was probably my first contribution to my home group. Um, with that, I will introduce our next speaker, Miss Kimberly from Wyoming. Yes. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Gilbert. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. I, uh, my sobriety date is May 3rd of 1999. I, uh, my, my home group is Common Solution Group in Sheridan, Wyoming. We meet at 730 on Wednesday nights. Um, come visit us if you're ever in Wyoming or driving through to, to if you ever go to Yellowstone or come to Sheridan or anything. Um, it's, it's a little bit weird to me. I got this uh, letter in the mail uh, a few months ago, and I kind of thought, ooh, they got the wrong person. <laughs> so I signed it and said yes, and I sent it back, and I thought, uh, you know, there, there, there's no way that, that I'm supposed to speak there. And then I got another letter a few weeks ago, and I thought, they meant it. And now I'm like, <laughs> I got here, and I checked the program just to see if my name was in here. Uh, weird. Um, <laughs> so here I am. Thanks. Um, I... Uh, and I, I heard lots of people talk up here that they start thinking about this thing, you know, this whatever the topic is. This is unity, our most cherished quality. And I started thinking about that March 8th. My um, So amazing story about this process of coming here. I love international conventions. I've been to the last two. And um, I promised myself, you know, like barring all, you know, if something terrible happens, I won't make it. But I hope to never miss one of these because I just, it's, it's where I absolutely know I'm a part of this. This is so much bigger than me. And, um, you know, mo my natural state is separate from you, separate from everyone. And when I come here, I, you know, I, I get this. I know. I know. So, um, okay, so about coming here to talk and getting this letter. I was pregnant with my baby who's wandering the halls with one of my friends, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, it was the day before, I, it's my third baby I've had, and I, um, I just realized that they were going to, I've had C-sections, and I realized that they were going to cut me open. And that if they didn't cut me open, I, um, you know, I can't get the baby out any other way because I've had a couple C-sections. And I started, like, panicking about this surgery that was coming up and realizing that I'm taking risks. And da -da, head, blah, spinning, it's constant, you know, and I've got this. And I get this letter in the mail and um, asking me to speak here. And my, like, I got some peace, and I got to know that I'm a part of this. And it, I got to think to myself, all right, so if I die tomorrow, that's okay. It's not that, you know, I've had a great life. And I didn't die, obviously. I'm here. But um, <laughs> I have this beautiful baby to bring with me. I brought my other baby, my five-year-old, to the last international convention in Toronto. So I'm an old pro with this babies at international conventions thing. Um, can't wait to go to one without. But um, <laughs> So um, I... Uh, I came in here um, scared and broken and um, completely separated from all other humans. Um, I really believe that I was the only one who felt the way I did. And if you, if you felt the way I did, you'd drink too. So sh quit telling me not to drink. It's the only thing left. And it's the only thing good in my life. It's the only thing that takes away that absolute, you know, when I found, when I found alcohol, what it did for me is it gave me, um, the ability to be with you, and um, and it worked for a little while until it didn't anymore, as uh, most of you know, or all of you know. Um, 
it worked it worked really well i when i drank i didn't have to i didn't i didn't think all the terrible things about myself i wasn't afraid that you'd look at me and i learned later in aa that you guys think about yourselves as much as i think about myself which <laughs> handy handy <laughs> you know um so but I really believed when I went out in the world that you guys were all judging me and, and thinking about how, t how short I was and how my face didn't fit together right and my hair wasn't right and I wasn't smart enough or funny enough or cool enough, mostly, you know, mostly all of it. And, uh, and um, so I drank and I didn't have to worry about what you thought about me anymore. I just got to be and I got to be um, and I, I got to be fun and I got to be funny and I got to dance well and I didn't care what you thought about me anymore. And uh Eventually, that didn't work anymore because I drank and I was alone. And um, all the things in my life were piling up. And I, had, I had no ability to solve any of those problems, and my problems were big. And so then I drank because if you had my life, you'd drink too. And, um, you know, eventually a judge sent me here, and um, I came for that. I came to get the cord off my back, you know. I came because uh, that's the only reason. And uh, I... Uh, I sat in here. My head still spun so fast I hardly ever listened to anything. But occasionally um, something would sink in. And occasionally I recognized that you guys didn't live that way anymore. And, I, and slowly but surely I began to feel a part of something. And uh, it's, uh, um, you know, that's, that's it's, it's amazing. What time did I start real quick? I just looked the clock. So sorry. Okay, thanks. Um, I didn't look at the clock. I'm just like, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so unity, our most cherished quality. Um, <laughs> just, um, okay. So, you know, what I, I, I didn't stay sober that time. I got sober about six months after I was, uh, I was, I came to you guys and, um, and that time I was desperate. I was ready. I came for you. Not I didn't come away from the court. I wasn't coming because I needed to get out of trouble and not go to jail. Um, I came because I needed, I, I wanted what you had by that point, you know. And I got a sponsor and I opened the book. Um, I, I didn't, I read the steps on the wall before. I didn't know that that's, um, I kind of thought that's how you did them. You just read them off the wall. And then when I got the sponsor and she opened the book and we started going through the steps the way they're out in the book. And um, by that process, I began to feel less separated from you. And um, and that that's that's a miracle for me. And uh, I got I, I was taught, you know, so I'm a member of a lot of different things. I tried to cut those things off. And when I was drinking, I tried not to be a part of my family. I tried not to commit to anything that would require work or accountability or showing up because it's really hard. Because when I start drinking, I can't stop, <laughs> you know. So um, I don't want to tell you I'm going to be somewhere and then not show up because I drank the night before. So I tried to avoid any kind of serious things. And I thought that as long as I avoided those, I wouldn't, you know, I, the only person I was hurting was me. It, it doesn't hurt you if I'm doing this. And um, I got sober and I had to become, I had to start becoming um, a member. And, and before I really, really, and I still today, I want to be the most special of everything. You know, I wanted to come here and be the best speaker. And then I realized we got tons and tons and tons of experience. Both these, the other two people got sober before I was born, which is... <laughs> So, so I gave up being like the most experienced one on the panel, you know, like, all right. So, uh, but that's the thing is I don't want to be a, you know, I want, 
my my nature is to want to be the best and the smartest and the prettiest and the you know whatever it is. I just want to be the best. I want everybody to look at me, but I don't because when you know when you look at like this, I'm like oh they're, just, they're they're listening to me. I don't really want that either. But but I what I really want is for you to like me. And what I really really want is just to feel a part of and a part of you guys. And um, I you know like when I'm in that place where I know that. I know that God is here and God is taking care of me. I know that this is that is God. That when we're all together, that's that's that power that we get here, and uh, it's amazing. And and uh, so, what I what I had to do is I had to learn how to be a part of, and I had to learn one of the best ways to learn how to be a part of is to um, see what I can bring wherever I'm going. And I was, you know, I was given that job. I love I love early service stories. I love how people get into service and that it's pretty much exactly the same as I always as I got into service. I was told to stand at the door and shake people's hands. And um it was the first time I like tried to reach out and touch somebody. I was so like afraid of people and hugs and me and just, you know, so I got to, and I began to get a smile on my face. Instead of walking in with my baseball hat on and my big baggy clothes, I walked in and I started to smile and welcome people. And when I was welcoming them, I wasn't thinking about how terrible I was. And um, somebody said, wash coffee cups. And I heard this story yesterday. It was so awesome. I'm washing coffee cups, and there's like three people around me, and we got this little line going, and we're getting the job done, and we're talking to each other, you know? And those 15 minutes, that I hate doing dishes. It's not fun. But um, those 15 minutes, I was thinking about other people. I was I was not, in my head, obsessed with myself when I'm obsessed with myself. Uh, the only thing I think about is, uh, you know, how separate I am from me, how different I am, whether I'm worse than you or better than you or whatever it is. It's just never, here are my people, you know. And uh, so I'm sitting there washing cups, and I start going to business meetings. I get tricked into these business meetings, and I, like everybody else does it, mostly I had nowhere else to be because where, where would I go? I have nothing in my life. It's <laughs> all I got. So I go to this business meeting. I became the grapevine representative for my group. And I, you know, I, it was about the time I was a little over a year sober when I went to Minneapolis. And those, the fire came into me. And I, I was willing to be the best grapevine representative I could, I could be. Not the best grapevine representative ever, um, but the best that I could be, which means that I just do my job. I show up and do my job. And that's, what I, that's the spirit I try, I've tried to bring into every service position I've done since then. And I always try to have a service position um, because – I feel bad when I don't show up when I say I'm going to. And um, so I like to have somewhere to be. I like to set myself up so that I have to show up for you guys, whether I'm feeling bad, whether I, you know, I'm having a bad day or a good day or whatever. And um, and it's it's amazing the places that willingness has brought me, you know. Um, I, uh, I've also moved a lot in sobriety. If you want some experience, strength, and hope on moving in sobriety, come talk to me. I've, this is the fifth town I've been in in 11 years of sobriety, and um, it just means a lot of changing groups and um, a lot of rebuilding that community that, that is there. You know, I came into my first home group, and people sucked me in because I'm a brand-new girl. And uh, the second time, I found some people that, that were like that. And other times, I've had to go and reach my hand out. And I, I always expect that you should reach your hand out to me, shouldn't you? And that the truth is, is that it's not my job to wait for you to welcome me. It's my job to welcome you. Um, I don't, you know, and it's my job to see what I can bring to any given situation. It's not my job to see what I'm getting. When I'm seeing what I'm getting, it's never enough. And when I'm seeing what I can bring, uh, I'm not worried about what I'm getting. I, I always leave plenty full of whatever it is that I'm looking for. So, um, it, it's worked in my family. It's worked. I learned it in AA. Um, and it's worked in my family, too. I tell you what, I have some, uh, you know, I never went to a psychiatrist to get 
diagnosed, but I always diagnose myself with some kind of social anxiety. Like, I walk into a room and I'm like, oh, you hate me. And I, uh, I find that when I do that and I, I look around and I say, what can I bring here instead of what can I get here? I, I ask where I can be helpful and I get, it, I get busy. When I'm busy, I'm not worried about I'm not worried about what you're thinking of me. And I usually leave feeling satisfied. You know, one thing I'm, I found out, I, I, don't, I um, spent some time meditating on the third step prayer a while ago. And ultimately, and, and since then, what I find is that I'm, I, it's my job to be useful. That uh, I, um, I, I always kind of thought that I, I do this stuff so that I can be happy. And I find that um, everywhere I look in the book now, it talks about how we're, our, our purpose is to be of maximum usefulness to God and his kids. Everywhere it talks about that. And um, when I'm trying to be useful to you, I don't have to worry about, about me. And um, I, I did not come, you know, I, that's not me. Me is kicking and screaming and throwing fits about how much I didn't get. You can ask my family. They remember, you know. You can ask my husband. He sees it occasionally. And uh, um, I don't have to live that way anymore. And... Um, you know, learning to play well with others, um, knowing that if we don't play well together here in AA, that we don't get to keep this around. That's, you know, um, it's uh, it's it's so important, and it, it's I I picked I picked up the twelve and twelve and <laughs> um, just read the first tradition. I found out that the twelve and twelve is where this topic comes from, which is exciting. So <laughs> I know, I know the first tradition is about unity, but I didn't actually know that it says right there, unity is our most cherished quality. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I hadn't read that before. I just, I'm like, you know, I, I read and I forget and I have to read it again and I forget and I read it and I forget. And um, um, I am so grateful to be here with you guys. I have an amazing life today. I... Uh, I get to, you know, I can walk into any place and be of service, um, and I have, I have to do that, or I, because you taught me that, you know, um, if I don't, if I'm not walking into any, if I'm not walking into a room with the spirit of love and service, I'm walking into a room with selfishness and self-centeredness, and it kills me. I'm an alcoholic. I die of selfishness and self-centeredness, and um, I don't have to live that way anymore. And I get to be a part of giant things like this, and smaller groups. I live in Wyoming. Um, one thing about Wyoming is that it's. Um, sparsely populated, and I, I came, you know, I lived in a town, um, I moved about a year ago um, from a town of um, about 2,500 people, and we had one meeting a week when I got there, it, it was about three to five people, and um, we started another meeting, but that was usually lower attendance than the three to five people, <laughs> so we read from the big book, because that's what you do when, when you've heard everybody's stories 18 times. Um, and it's what to do anyway. <laughs> we just started the big book study and then, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was tough. It, I had come from other districts and other groups that were bigger and the, there were more people to participate. And I went to this group. The district wasn't active at the time. Um, um, and what I did is I called the DCM and I said, where, where do you meet? And the art group just resigned. So I stepped in and, and, um, we got this district meeting on a regular basis. You know, I was there for almost four years, and um, that's what that's what we did. We started to form committees, uh, and and what I did is I brought this. What I'd always been taught is that what we do as a district is we try to be visible 
we try to be visible to still suffering alcoholics. We try to make ourselves available because a lot of people hadn't seen all this other work, the treatment and the corrections and the PICPC. They hadn't seen that. Um, they didn't really get that, what we were doing. And um, so that's what we did. I, I, you know, and then we have a delegate and we have all these other people. We have a chair and we have all these other people who can bring their experience too. And, and then we started going to the area assemblies as as a district, you know, the district had been dark for a few years, and then we started going, and I recently moved away from that district, but it's, it's really amazing what can happen when you show up consistently, you know, show up consistently and see what I can bring, and, and that's, um, that's kind of what unity looks like to me, and, and I'm super thrilled to be here and sober, and thank you guys so much for letting me share. Thank you. Uh, Kim. Um, so to continue with this little thing of mine, um, here I am in AA, and, and the speakers have been wonderful because, you know, they're all, they're keep saying, what can I bring to the situation? And my first sponsor would always say that. And I'd say, well, what can I bring? She said, well, bring anything, even if it's a package of donuts, Jackie. You know, and I did. I brought many donuts to things, and that began my journey with unity. You know, I wanted to be a part, but I didn't know how, and she taught me. And, you know, as the, the speakers so far have shared, um, you know, I, uh, I didn't think I needed anyone here either. I got here. I didn't want to stop drinking. I just didn't want to. I couldn't tell you what I'd do. Um, so I lost eight people in my family um, my first two years of sobriety, so I was a lot of wakes and funerals. And I remember the one time I came out of a funeral out of a church, and my sponsor was in the parking lot. Now, I had not invited her, but I'm telling you, for, the, for that moment, I got the strength to go on to what I had to do next. And I will never forget that feeling of, my God, I think I need her. You know, and the first time I spoke, she was sitting. It was like, a, it looked like a motorcycle gang. And in the middle of it was this elderly lady with a bun. <laughs> she looked like Mary Magdalene to me. And, you know, I needed her. And I didn't even know it. And she knew I needed her. She knew that I hadn't a clue about how to be a part of. And, you know, when I asked her to be my sponsor, she said, yes, I will, Jackie, if someday you will sit down with another woman alcoholic and share freely what you find in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what? That's what it's about today. You know, I've gone down to the the uh, inverted triangle, and I have made unbelievable friends, met people all over the world, and it's about you and me staying together. That's what it's about. It's as, I don't care if we're at a business meeting or in my home group or, you know, fighting at the end. It's about staying in the boat, and she told me that. She said, you play nicely in the sandbox, Jackie, but you stay in the sandbox, Jackie. You know, and I have stayed in the sandbox, and I'm telling you, that unity, you know, um, I need you, and you need me, and that's a nice feeling in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that today because, you know, recently in our home, we've had some, we've gone in a different direction, and that fellowship was there. It was there and took care of us. They just cuddled us, put us in their hands, and they took care of us until we got going on our own again. And um, it works for me today. And with that, our elder statesman, I hear, <laughs> Stu B. from Maryland, I hear he has a great message. Hi, everybody. My name is Stu Bramo. I'm alcoholic. <laughs> Great way to get started, isn't it? If you can't have fun being sober, you missed the boot. Trust me. Joy of good living. 
I want to thank you all for uh, the committee and everybody for inviting me up here to participate in this thing. Uh, I'm glad my wife Kathy could come with me the first, for the first time at one of these things. And um, she's so excited she can't wait now to go to Atlanta. So <laughs> she'll probably stay going home making plans for that in about five years. It's good to see uh, one of my home group members here, uh, Joe, sitting in the front row to keep me honest. And uh, a lot of friends of mine from Florida and Blackstone and a lot of other people and guys I've known for a long time and gals I've known for a long time. And it's great to see so many friends who love to support you. And I told them all, I said, look, at this stage of the game, you've heard me so many times, go into another meeting and hear somebody different. Or do like you normally do at home, go take a nap at your age. You know. <laughs> My sobriety date is March the 12th, 1966. And um, I'm not a first fighter. I, I came to AA two years prior to that, 1964, and I, uh, I'll never forget, I went to my first meeting. I was 23 years of age. I looked around the room. It looked like everybody was 100 years old. And I wondered, what in God's name am I doing here? And they all had nicknames. We had a guy in that meeting that night. His name was Boxcar Smitty. And we had Philadelphia Phil and One-Eyed Jack and, and Johnny Budweiser, and they had all kinds of nicknames. And I'm thinking, what am I getting? And if they, had, if they had hair, it was white. And, I, and, and they drank more than I, like she was talking about, they drank longer than I was old. And I'm thinking, what have I got myself into here? But I don't think any of us get here by mistake, and I don't think we get here a day too soon or a day too late. I think we get here exactly when God wants us to get here. And uh, my home group is the Curtis Bay Monday Noon Group. Um, if you ever want to see a bunch of old-timers in AA, come to my home group. You want to see some old people. I go there because it makes me feel young, and I'm 70 years old. We, we got about, we got about uh, 22 members in my home group, but we have well over 400 years of sobriety in that meeting. And it attracts other old-timers. And how ironic, we meet in a, a little uh, community center of the church, bought this community center, turned to community center, that we all know years ago, that community center was a, a bar called the Flamingo Lounge that a lot of us used to drink in. And now we're going there to get sober. Still has a bar in there. We love that place. You know, I love my home group. And I think if you don't love your home group, you better do something about it. And... Um, but the relationships, you know, coming here, um, before we get in this thing about unity, I, I can't add no more about unity than these gals are I told about. I'll be honest with you. I mean, the fact of it is, if, if, if we don't hang in here together, we're going to hang out there alone. And I want this thing to be like it was when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. This program saved my life. Everything I have near and dear to me today is due to the fact I'm sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. The fact I'm even alive is due to the fact I'm sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, if we can't make it here, trust me, we're not going to make it. But... Um, you know, I, I used to go to meetings, and, um, oh, I, I know what I want to tell you about. See, I don't have no plan to talk. You know, what I, you know what I did before the meeting? Nancy, Nancy Kay, she's our past delegate. I've known Nancy a long time. She's doing a meeting next door in case you want to go over there. <laughs> she came up to me, and she said, I am so nervous. I said, you're nervous. I said, I don't care how long we stay sober. We still get nervous. And so we just held hands up here, and we prayed that God gives us the words to say they're supposed to come out. And I want to thank her for doing that for me. I learned long ago, if you want to cheat speaking, that's how you cheat. You say a prayer. Ask God to help you give you the right words to say. So uh, I'm just as curious what I'm going to talk about for the next 15 minutes as you are. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> we were sitting around, Gene, a bunch of us were sitting around. And we walk around the, uh, Thursday night, the convention center, and they ran into five couples. And all of us had gotten sober back in the 70s. And we're all still here. They all had over 35 years of no sobriety. And we're sitting at that table reminiscing, talking about our Social Security checks and our pensions and different things. And... We looked over at a bunch of young people where they were having a lot of fun. They could fool themselves and being silly. And we said, damn, there we were 35 years ago, right over there having a lot of fun. 
And Lane went up, he went over and talked to him and said, hey, you guys and gals, you want to see what you're going to look like in 35 years? <laughs> I hope the hell he didn't scare him out of here, I'll tell you that right now. So we can have a lot of fun to be sober. I'm glad to be here. I used to, uh, I used to go to meetings. I used to talk about, think about, uh, I used to hear all these drunks say, I, I swore I'd never be like one of my parents. Because my, one of my parents was also an alcoholic, and I never, I never want to be like him. Here I am, just like him today. And I said, wow, I used to say the same thing. I said it because neither one of my parents drank. I never want to be like one of my parents. They're the most boring people you ever want to meet in your entire life. They didn't drink. No one in my family drank. I used to hang around with a kid named Freddie. I used to like to go to Freddie's house because Freddie's father drank. There's always something going on at Freddie's house. There's a police car in the driveway. Here comes a fire engine, a ambulance. Freddie's father's missing to his mother through the door. I mean, there's always something going on. Freddie's father is missing for three days, and I just love that atmosphere. You know? I just, I couldn't, I just love to go hang around there all the time. And I'm a late bloomer by today, so I just started drinking when I was like 14 years of age, maybe almost 15. I'm going to shorten it up so we can talk about unit and recovery. First time I, got, I drank, I got drunk. I don't know how much my first ice cream cost. My first bottle of wine cost 51 cents. You know? That's a long time ago. Long time ago. And uh, in fact, I bought two of them for a dollar one cents. For a dollar two cents, I bought two bottles of wine. And Deerport wine, great wine, no classy stuff. And I got, first time I drank, I got drunk. I made a fool out of myself. I swear to God, I would never drink again. And yet I found something in that bottle of booze I never found in life. My personality before I started drinking. Look, I was a weird, flaky, mixed-up kid before I even started drinking. And that drinking just put the fuel on the fire. I mean, I was a bad kid even before. I, I, was, even, I was like four or five years old I was a bad kid. I was so bad one time my mother got started beating me. She used to make me go cut my own switch. She got started beating me. She said, I'll fix you. I had two older sisters, and my brother and I got in trouble. And she said, I'll fix you. She did. She, she dressed me and my brother up in my, little, my sister's little clothes and, and put a little lace socks on me, a little dress, a little blouse and everything. And, and she set me on the front steps of her, of her porch. When the kids got off school, I was like four years old, and the kids were coming by the house. They got laughing at us, you know. And my brother's crying. I'm laughing. I'm thinking, this is the funniest thing happened to me in a long time, you know. I told my friends, hell is the water. I didn't grow up to be a cross-dresser or something, you know what I mean? Yeah, psychological damage like that. Yeah. But, I mean, I was just crazy from the very beginning to the very end, you know. I mean, I, I was a young kid. I mean, all I thought about was girls and drinking. I mean, you come up, snuck up behind me and bust my head open like a coconut. All you see are running out of my head is little naked women in beer bottles. That's all I thought about. I'd make love to a sticker bush if I thought there was a girl in there somewhere. You know? it didn't matter to me. But I was just wild and crazy, and that's how I was. There's no shortcuts about it. And so every, and I, the first time I drank, I made a fool out of myself. I got sick. I was at a party. I leaned out of the window truck. I fell out of the window. And from then on, I drank. I found, but you know what? I found something in that booze I never found in life. That little thick and mixed up weirdo little kid. My personality was like a big piece of Swiss cheese. And all those holes filled up solid. And he says, you want to see someone getting sober, look for that profound change in their personality. There's more to it than just not drinking. I went through a profound change in personality when I started drinking. I became what I thought was the cat's meow. I just could not wait to get it and do it again. And I drank every chance. I never met a drink I didn't like. I loved drinking. I, I could never get enough. But I got in a lot of trouble. I, I drank for what it did for me. And it gave me that feeling of, believe it or not, I was very shy. I was insecure. I was bashful. And 
but it just changed my whole personality. Now I think I'm God's gifted women. I live fast, I young, be handsome, of course, better all hang out. Yeah, just go for it. And uh, got into a lot of trouble from drinking. And um, cut a long story short, um, I got married uh, when I was 17. Most people don't get married when they're 17, unless one or two reasons. Someone was crazy or pregnant, and we were a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> got married in April 1958. My son was born in July, six months premature. He weighed almost nine pounds. Yeah. <laughs> My father told me the next one's probably going to take you about nine months. Yeah. And, uh, and then we, uh, we had a child the second year, and after three, uh, we had another child the following year. And so I was father of two kids at the time. I was 19 years age, booted out of high school, don't have a formal education, so don't look for any, any fancy intellectual words coming out of this guy up here on the stage. I'm proof you stay sober a hell of a long time, not mouth to nothing. You know what I mean? But... But, but the fact of it is, is uh, and you don't even have to be a delicate to be invited to one of these things, you know, or a trustee or anything. Just show up, stay sober, try to help another drunk. So anyway, uh, the second year we had another child. I lost her, and uh, she died after three months, and I uh, used that for excuse to drink. And uh, then we, a couple years later, had my other daughter, Dawn, who was born. And, uh, but I, in the process, got into a lot of trouble. Been arrested, arrested because of my drinking. Came to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1964 because I, I reached that point. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. 23 years of age, not quite 24. And um, came in, and I checked it out, and they gave me two guarantees, same two I'm going to give you today. I don't care how bad it is in your life if you're an alcoholic and how long you've been sober, you take a drink, you ain't seen nothing yet. And not everybody goes out and takes a drink, it's back to Alcoholics Anonymous. We see a lot of people come in there now getting white chips. You know what? They don't all come back, and someday you may not come back if you go out. The other guarantee was no matter how bad it is, if you don't take a drink, even if things don't get better, you can get better. And by you getting better means things don't happen to get worse. So to cut a long story short, I couldn't accept it, went back to drinking. Within six months, I ended up uh, in a bad drunk, living in an abandoned summer home, down off the uh, river in our local area where I live today. And um, came out there, ended up in a hospital, and then the next day, a couple of days later, I then had no treatment centers back in the 60s, so they put guys like me in the mental institutions. So I ended up in a mental institution into a lock ward of a state mental institution, Crownsville State Hospital. Never graduated from Penn State or Maryland State, but I did graduate from Crownsville State. <laughs> and while we were in there, we played all the typical games that drunks play. They put me in a, they put me in a ward. They, they diagnosed me after two days. They said, we think you're an alcoholic. You need to go to the alcoholic section. There's a cottage up on the hill. I said, what do you do up there? They said, you drink. I mean, you go to AA and you work. I said, I can go to AA, come down here and go to AA and go to work. They said, fine, stay right here. I, I spent six weeks in a lock ward eating with a soup spoon, took away my shoestrings and my wallet and everything else. I could have been a person smoking a cigarette, eating with a knife and fork and having a good time. <laughs> Stupid. Real short. We made shrine guys trays for therapy. We made all little leather wallets and even made leather belts even though we couldn't wear them. And then one day one guy says, hey, why don't we do something different? Can't we do something different? I said, like what? And he said, duh. What about dancing for therapy? I said, that sounds good. I'll have to dance. So the guy says, we'll try that tomorrow. So the next day he brought a record player, a little record player in and, uh, Turned it on. He brought all the crazy girls from their ward, <laughs> and all of us crazy guys from our ward. Bought them in a room. Turned on. Said, "Go ahead and dance." And right before I ended up at that house, I tried to put my head through a concrete porch, and run my fist through a bunch of windows. My wrists were all cut off from going through glass, and my wrists were taped and everything. And I, I'm, I'm just looking like crazy. And I asked this old crazy girl, she wants to dance. Cute little blonde. She said, "I love to." And we're out there. We're cutting down, dancing around, having a good time. Dipping her letter. Let her know. I know my, de- my steps. You know, I'm dipping a little bit. <laughs> So I'm dancing, we're having a good time. And she said, you tried to commit suicide, didn't you? I said, no. She said, yes, you did. Look at your wrist and all. I said, no. I said, 
they think I'm an alcoholic. She says, no, I think you, I think you tried. I said, what are you in here for? She said, I killed my husband. <laughs> I said, I know I'm in a nut house, but you know what? I might be, I might be crazy, but I'm not stupid. I'm getting a new dance partner right now. <laughs> anyway, cut a long story short. To the grace of God, I came out of there, and I kept on drinking and getting in trouble, and I've come off a drunk March of 12, 1966, and I was able to get back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank God it was here. And I got involved with a bunch of tough old guys who didn't care how I felt. They said, Stu, it's here if you want it and you don't want it. See you later, baby. Don't let the door hit you in the tail when you walk out. You might want to come back in. My sponsor, and I think that what's lacking there a lot of time today is a good sponsorship. My sponsor spoon-fed me alcoholics novice. We went to meet one night. We saw the word group spelled G-R-O-U-P, grow up. <laughs> he said, you're 25 years old. You've got to grow up. He taught me how to introduce myself. He said, introduce yourself that you're an alcoholic because you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I always thought the guys I introduced and I sponsor over the years introduce yourself as alcoholics. Yes, I appreciate what you're talking about, having other addictions, etc. We all do. We're, we're compulsive. We're addicted by personality and nature. But in here, we're alcoholics. And I think the minute you start se separating yourself and say you're an alcoholic and a something else or, or an addict or whatever, you're now disunifying us. Our common bond, our common focus, the one common denominator we all have in a whole room if we're alcoholics, no matter what we came from or what we are, is the fact we're alcoholics. And that's our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. We can't be all things to all people. But we can help a drunk. We can practice principles and put these other things in our life. I had the privilege of my first year sober because I was a crazy guy about sobriety. I loved AA. I fell in love with it, and I'm still in love with AA. I got enthused, and I'm still enthused about AA. I had the privilege of going to New York my first year sober. I was six, seven months sober. We went to New York to Bill Wilson's anniversary. My first question was, who's Bill Wilson? <laughs> Why do we got to go to New York? We got these right here. <laughs> they said, you got to dress up when you go see Bill. Go to his anniversary. Wear a suit. I don't have a suit. Well, we'll get you one. I said, I'll get my own. I went to a pawn shop. I bought a brown wool suit for $20. I don't know if you ever wore a wool suit before. They itch. <laughs> They weren't permanently pressed. By the time I got to New York, my pants were up around my knees because they weren't permanently pressed. I had to go to Chinese Laundry to get my pants pressed out. Sat around straight legged all weekend, you know what I mean? Heard Bill Wilson tell the story. Went to three more of his anniversaries before he died. Every year I went to his anniversary. Drove the, drove the three, four hours to get up there to go there. I heard Bill Wilson. I don't mean to be disrespectful or, or anti-religious or anybody. To me, it was like Jesus coming out to see me. I heard the man. I heard the words. And I was no different than anybody else who went to those meetings and those anniversaries. For the out-of-towners that day, they had a, a room like this, a big room where we could all get, who, who came there could get in a big circle and go around and walk up and shake Bill's hand and say a few words. And I forget saying, Bill, I want to thank you for letting God use you as an instrument to find the program, save my life. And all he said was pass it on. And that's what this is all about, passing it on. I went back three more years to his anniversaries. What a gift. He could see what's happening today in person. I know the spirit of him is here. How, how, I mean, how far can you come in 75 years? From two to almost two million. We are so blessed. We are so fortunate. You think if you've been here for a while, think about the guys and gals that came here, went out and never got a chance to come back. Think about the guys and gals we drank with and never got a chance to even come here to get sober to begin with. They died out there. How blessed we are. I remember after I was sober a few years, um, I went to uh, – the Outer Banks, there was an old couple down there, Isaac Miller Copeland. They post, passed away sober, a long time, tried to sober. I remember laying on the beach one time with, with uh, Millie, 
And I was eating, we were laying up on the beach. It looked like a couple of beach whales laying up there. And I said, Millie, I don't hear the things I used to hear in AA. I'm sober nine years, and I don't hear the things I used to hear in AA. And there's people in this room probably thinking the same thing. I don't hear things I used to hear. She said, then why the hell don't you say it? <laughs> and that's our responsibility. We owe the new drunk the truth. I thank God I got involved with people concerned with saving my life and not my feelings. Our sponsor introduced me, introduced me to the word KISS, K-I-S-S. I get meet sometimes I hear people say, that means keep the simple and spiritual. When I got sober, I meant keep the simple stupid. Yeah. And my sponsor said, remember, the first three letters of the word stupid is stew. Keep the simple stupid. <laughs> I bought a lot of time just not drinking. Action is the magic word. I remember I was in there a short while, and they were raffling off big books. I want a big book at a raffle in the meeting. Next thing, I'm running around, they like this with a big book on their arm. My sponsor said, what you got there? I said, a big book. <laughs> Everybody should have a big book in AA. He said, open up and read me a paragraph. I opened it up. I read it. I read him a paragraph. He says, well, what did he say? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, some people come here with brains. You ain't one of them. <laughs> you sit down, shop, and listen. He said, oh, and also, I wanted to talk when I first came in. I want to talk. He said, what do you want to talk about? I said, drinking. He said, we know how to drink. You heard now not to drink. I said, no. He said, shut up and listen. In fact, why don't you, for the next six months, keep your mouth shut and listen. He said, God gave you two ears and one mouth. You know why? He evidently wants you to listen as much, twice as much as he wants you to talk. Otherwise, he would have gave you one great big ear and two mouths. Okay. <laughs> so he said, sit and listen. I walked up to an old lady one night. She says, oh, sir, are you really happy? I said, yeah. She said, when the hell are you going to tell your face about it? <laughs> Don't be afraid to smile and have a lot of fun. I heard the word love mentioned a lot in AA. I knew a lot about lust. I didn't know about love until I came to AA. Both of them four-letter words. Both of them start with an L. One's taken, one's given. I ride down the road one day. I told my sponsor, I never heard my mother tell me she loved me since I was a kid. I'm 25 years old. I never heard her tell me she loved me. He said, well, let it begin with you. Go home and call you over and tell you love her. I want seven kids. There's no alcoholism in my whole family. I got two children. I got six grandchildren, six great-grandchildren. No alcoholism, period, in my whole family. No drug addiction, nowhere. I don't know what I made up for a whole family or what happened, but I took the drinking like a duck takes the water. So I called my mother up, and I'm talking to her, and before I hung up, I said, Mom, I need to tell you something. She said, what? I said, I need to tell you I love you. She said, you're drinking again, aren't you? I said, no, I'm not drinking, Mom. She said, you sure? I said, no, I'm not drinking. Oh, okay. So I called her up the next day. I said, Mom, I need to tell you one thing before we hang out. She said, what's that? I said, I love you. She said, well, ditto. <laughs> next day, same here. Uh-huh. Well, me too. And then one day she said, I love you too. And it started with her. And it started with my father. It started with my whole family. It just spreads down the line. I've been an exciting luck in Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe my life to Alcoholics Anonymous. I asked my sponsor, I said, when should I get in these steps? He said, well, I suggest you get into them now and get into them when you come back. Because <laughs> if you don't get into them, you ain't going to stay sober. You may buy some time. You might buy some white knuckle sobriety, but if you don't get sober and get new steps. He said, look, if you're having a problem, ask yourself a simple question. What step are you working? If you can't sleep tonight, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Think of the third step. It's 1 o'clock. Think of the first, first step. 
My whole life has changed. I had a speech impediment when I got sober. I just stuttered a lot. I found with talking fast, I don't stutter. You just have to listen fast. That's all you have to do. I couldn't see when I got sober. I was walking around meeting squinching all the time. I said, what the hell is the matter? I said, I can't see. He said, get some glasses. I said, I look better without them. He said, you ain't here to win a personality contest or a beauty contest. I talked my hand over my mouth. Get your hand out of your face. I said, half my teeth are missing. You hang, look, my last drunk took place in a bar called the Bucket of Blood. You hang in a bucket of blood down the corner, ignore Charles and Mount Roy Avenue. I'll tell you why they called the name of the Bucket of Blood. A fight broke out. They put this, they, they would shut the doors and let you fight out. They let cops in and nobody out. He said, get some new teeth. Now I've got about two minutes to wrap this up. And uh, so I got some new teeth. Life is good. Life's good. I'm, I'm excited. I'm having a lot of fun being sober. I still work with a lot of drunks. My first couple of years in A, I worked with a lot of young drunks. All the old drunks would give the young drunks to me back in the 60s. They said, where are those old? And the first thing a young drunk would say is, where are the other young drunks? I said, they're on the other side of Baltimore City. We'll go there Tuesday night. I'll show you some young drunks. There wasn't none over there. <laughs> we go over there, and there's none on there. They said, where are they at? I said, they're in Catonsville Friday night. I, and they weren't on there. I told my sponsor I wasn't lying. I was romancing the truth. Just <laughs> buy them a little bit of time. Now, 40 years go by, I work a lot of old drunks. I take the average old drunk into a typical meeting in the day today. First thing he says, where the hell's all the old drunks? I said, they're all the side of Baltimore. I'll take you there Tuesday night. I'll show you some old drunks. <laughs> anyway, believe it or not, you may not believe us. I could go on for a long time. <laughs> but I only got 20 minutes. My time's up. But I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, unity is mentioned one time in those traditions. One time. It's not mentioned in the steps. Concepts are mentioned one time. But it's the most important thing we have. If we don't stick together and keep this thing going, we're going to die. We are alike. We owe it to the new person to make it the way it was when we found it. When you leave here, ask yourself a question. Have you made this place a better place or a worse place? Has it all been worth it? And so far, I can say yes, it's been worth every penny. My family is thankful that I'm sober and alcoholics anonymous. My grandchildren, you talk about any spirits? Go to grandparents' day and walk into a class and have your little eight-year-old granddaughter job. and say, hey, there's my pop pop. Stand there and hold your father's head in the palm of your hand when he takes his last breath. A man you couldn't stand to be like and couldn't wait to grow up and be just like him after you got sober. To go back and take care of an ex-wife when she was dying with cancer. I tell her I still loved her as a person. I was there for her all the way to the end. That's how you get your self-respect. It can't get any better than this. My daughter, I'll wrap it up with this. My daughter, my son-in-law, got this attitude trying to make life good for me as I'm getting older. They're in a position to do it, they said. Took me to the movie. They said, Dad, we saw this movie. We want you to see it with us. And it was called The Bucket List. <laughs> That's love for you. They said, Dad, give us your bucket list. I said, my bucket's running over. I don't have a bucket list. Then we'll make up a bucket list for you. They found out the captain and I wanted to come here. Next thing you know, they made all arrangements for us to come here. She said, Dad, you're on a fixed income. You're retired. You worked in a factory for a living. We're in a position where we can do things for you because you took care of us. We're going to take care of you. Nice flight down there. They had a limo waiting for us to bring us to the airport. I'm living a dream. I'm living a dream. If you're sober, you're living a dream. You're living a dream. I want to thank you for letting me come here and share it with you, and God bless you.
What a great message, Stu. Um, well, you heard it. We're stuck together. So uh, we're here, like it or not. So the mic is open. We have uh, about 15 minutes left if you wanted to share anything about Unity or come up and uh, ask something of the uh, speakers. You have to come to the mic, sir, because it's being taped. Thank you. How you doing? I'm Jim. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jim. Yeah, the most important thing I learned about Unity was uh, an old timer like Stu explained to me once that uh, no matter what you're dealing with, the, the steps, the traditions, and the concepts, one identifies the problem, two identifies the solution, and three through 11 gets you to 12. And when that was explained to me, the traditions really opened up for me. Because in the steps, the problem is I'm powerless, the solution is a power greater than myself. And 3 through 11 gets me to 12, which is anonymity, spiritual foundation, and uh, spiritual principles. So with the traditions, the problem is unity. How do we keep this thing together? And that's the most important thing. And the solution is the same as the steps. It's a power greater than myself, a loving God as he shows himself in my, in my group conscience. And then 3 through 11 gets me to 12, which is anonymity. There's no big eyes or little use. And that's a very spiritual thing. And... Uh, principles before personalities keep this thing together and it truly has saved my life and uh you guys were all great uh, i have a tape of Stu from 20 years ago when he had 20 years of sobriety the tape is from and uh did he get any better i'm looking at <laughs> yes he did and i'm looking at him and i'm going i know that voice but that body don't seem to match the voice and uh he talks about going home with his 20-year chip and telling his dad i got 20 years in sobriety and his dad said that's nothing. Your mother's got 70 years. Thank you. My name is Arthur, and I'm an alcoholic from San Hi, Antonio. I want to welcome everyone to sunny San Antonio. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, on, on unity, I've said at meetings many times that we need to add, you know, we have these lovely signs, uh, you know, let go, let God, and all of these things posted around. And I wanted, I wanted to add one, I think. We'd like you to consider it. Birds of a feather flock together. If you don't flock with the birds of your kind, you're going to get flocked. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Alexa. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Alexa. Hey, everybody. Um, I just wanted to share one thing that between the young people and the old timers. I had my son's a young person in AA, like I once was. And um, he was introducing me to some friends that are also young people in AA. And uh, he looked at me, and we were talking about me having my 25th birthday yesterday. And he asked me, he says, how, how do you qualify? I mean, is it 10 years or older? And uh, I, I was kind of like I didn't have an answer. And I finally, that's been going on in my mind, and I finally thought of what it is. And I remember in my, some of my first meetings that uh, they said, you become an old-timer by you don't drink and you don't die. And I told him that, but now I'm thinking, you'll know it when you're there. You know? But anyway, I've loved everything, and I'm continuing to enjoy it. Thank you so much for the speakers and volunteers. Thank you. Hi, my name is Alan, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Alan. And I like to watch cooking shows. Yes, I'm going to fit. I'm going to 
tie cooking shows into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you know, I like to watch cooking shows, and sometimes the judge will tell the contestant, you know, why did you make two or three dishes that were so-so when you could have made one dish that was absolutely great? And that kind of ties in with our primary purpose. Why we don't need to do two, three, four things, you know, adequately when we have one primary purpose, to stay sober and to reach, uh, reach others. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm having a little brain fade here. Pardon me? Carry the yeah, we need to stay sober and carry the message. And that's the one thing we need to do. And that's... Uh, and because if we if we can do that well, that's how we stay sober. And uh, my first real uh, experience with unity is I live just outside of Sacramento and I got to go on vacation to South Africa, of all places. And um, I landed and I called AA and they took me to a meeting. They, they came to my hotel and they took me to a meeting. And it was the most amazing thing because here I thought, here I am halfway around the world. I'd never met any of these people before in my life, yet it felt just like I was in a room of old friends. Mm -hmm. And that exactly is how unity feels to me. And, you know, the, the, the big meeting last night was just so emotional for me. And it's the same thing, you know. It's just old friends you've never met. And that's really what it's all about. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm, I'm Buck, an alcoholic. Hi, Buck. Uh, thank you. You all did fantastic, each and every one of you. I love the story. I've been to Yellowknife a long ago. The reason that I'm here in San Antonio is because of the unity. I'm involved in a board of directors of three businesses. Um, I've watched my mom die, my father die, two friends die from prostate cancer, all within the last four months. And not one of them, not one person from anything else that I'm involved in has ever showed up. But I've got a phone call that came in literally while I was sitting here from Scottsdale, Arizona, where I used to hang out as well. And the unity is there for the joy, but it's also there when things are, when you're walking through some dark days, as I am kind of walking through these days, you know, I know there's a light on the end of the, at the end of the tunnel, and it's not just a train coming back at me. Thanks, Stu, for your, uh, I love that, man, what you're talking about. But thanks to uh, AA, not only to save my life, it's, it's keeping me going right now after many, many years of sobriety. The value of this program is way beyond the 12 steps that I found. It's really in the, in the daily walk, too. Thanks again. Thank Have you. a great meeting. My name is James Harrison. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. And I want to thank the panel, each and every one of you. You had a great message, and we really do appreciate that. Just a quick question. What do you think, for any of the panel, what do you think is the biggest threat to AA unity, and what can we do about that? Anyone want to field it? Sure. Come on up. I need to answer that because I say this all the time. I think the biggest threat to unity in Alcoholics Anonymous is rigidity. Once we begin, and, and as I read, um, and Bill said the same thing, and that comes from our ego and our sense of righteousness fueled by anger. Anything that isn't fueled by love will always cause disunity. Thank you.
Hi, everyone. My name is Valerie. I'm an alcoholic from Hi, Chicago. Um, I just want to thank you all for being here. Uh, I came here from Chicago by myself, and I wasn't prepared for so many people being here. Um, <laughs> when I walked in to the registration and got my badge, and I thought, oh, my God, there's so many people here, and I'm here all alone. That was the first thing I thought. I don't know anybody. I don't know who's here. I don't know if anyone from Chicago came. Within 20 minutes, I met a man who lives a block from my house, <laughs> and so we shared and we talked. Um, I went to a workshop, and I met at the end of the workshop. I turned around, and I met two people that were at my house at a barbecue on 4th of July last year from an Allen Oak Club because sober alcoholics like to have someplace sober to go. Uh, walking down the hallway, I meet a woman that asked me to speak at a convention 23 years ago. So I just celebrated my 24th anniversary on Tuesday, and all I can say is thank you for showing me how to live and for saving my life and for giving me one. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. My name is Terry. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Terry. I'm from Yellowknife in, in Canada, and I, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, my sober date is December 26, 1983, and... Um, I just want to um, say something about Vicki, of course, because I'm just so delighted to see her today. I moved into, I'm from a very remote reservation in BC, and I moved into the city. I, was, I had three young children, and I was a single mom. I had been divorced from a very mean cop. Anyways, I was mean too. <laughs> Anyways, and I, they started telling me about service work and, and unity and all this, and I didn't know what it was about. I was a year and a half sober. And somebody said, well, why don't you go into this prison there um, and help people out there? And I said, oh, my God. I grew up in a boarding school, and I was like a prisoner there, and I thought I would never be in a place where I was locked up again. And anyways, I met with Vicky there, and she said, you know, meet this person at the front, and you, you can go in with her. And when Vicky and I walked in there and the door slammed, I thought I was going to die right there like and Vicky said no 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 it's okay don't worry we we're going to walk out of here and it, we went into this women's prison called Ocala which was a very very tough place for men and women and for me that kept me sober because uh, we got to see what happens if you don't get sober that uh, you know and I used to see some of the women out on the street and um, they they died there and I'm here because of people like Vicky who continues to do her service work um, I don't have a good track record on service work. I'm, I'm not all that patient. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not there yet, but uh, hopefully soon I will be. And I, I just want to thank everybody in AA because um, it's people like me who come from places that uh, we say nobody will understand us and nobody will love us. And that when we come here, we find that love and we find that people don't look for our differences. They look for our sameness. And thank you all for that. And God bless you. And I love you all. Thanks. Thank you. I would like to thank the speakers one more time. And it is about change, and it's not about Alcoholics Anonymous changing. It's about me changing. And um, I'm not the same lady that came into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I try to live a life of honor and dignity today in everything I do. And, you know, I'm a farm girl. 
And um, I just wanted to tell you this one story, which is so apropos to my recovery and what you have done for me. And it's about um, right now in Vermont, we have pumpkins growing in our garden. And, you know, I, I feel like I have been a, a chosen pumpkin. You know, you go to the patch and you pick a pumpkin, the one you like. And I think, you know, I was picked and I was dirty. And, you know, you sat me in a chair and you uh, cleaned me up and you opened me up and you took out the guck. And then you gave me some eyes so that I could see. You put a smile on my face. You lit me up and you put me out for the world to see. And that's exactly what happened to me in this program. And that's what I try to pass on. And um, I will be ever grateful and humble to do anything for this program that saved my life. So please help me, closing with the Lord's